By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. As regular listeners will know, I'm based in Paris, and here in Europe, we're getting ready for what everyone's saying is going to be a tough winter. And energy conservation initiatives are everywhere you look. Public buildings are turning down the heat. Streetlights won't be on all night. Grocery stores are even changing how they manage things like fish counters and when they start cooking the rotisserie chickens. Our famous landmarks like the Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame Cathedral are turning off the lights earlier than usual to save electricity. And in this world capital of fashion, our leaders are suddenly sporting turtleneck sweaters under their suits. Given all of this preparation, today we ask, with winter nearly here, how bad does Europe's energy crisis look? I'm your host, Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by two guests with enormous expertise on this topic. For Moody's Investor Service, we have Petter Breiman, who analyzes European sovereign risk from Paris, and Matthias Halstern, who analyzes European corporates from Frankfurt. Now, Matthias, I'd like to start with you. I've just talked about some of the changes we're seeing in France in response to the crisis, but households everywhere in Europe are being encouraged to make changes to save energy. What have you and your family done in Germany? Oh, uh, Sarah, I think that's a, that's a great question, uh, to be very frank. So I'm actually trying to take cold showers by now. And uh, we also attempted to switch on our heating uh, much later than we used to do uh, in the past. And actually, so far, we have survived. That's the good news. So cold showers on chilly mornings in an unheated house. I think that gives potentially a preview for, for the kinds of situations that many families are going to be facing this winter. So, Petr, where do you see we are currently with the energy supply situation in Europe? Well, I think as, as far as the supply of natural gas is concerned, it's arguably looking better than many had feared. Um, EU gas storage levels are higher than usual this time of the year. Um, they're about 90% full, which is about a quarter of annual EU consumption. But gas flows to Europe are still clearly lower now than they were a year ago. Uh, Russian supplies are only about 10% of total supplies, or around 35-40% um, about a year ago before the invasion. It's been partly offset by, by a liquid, liquefied natural gas, but, but that's not managed to entirely offset um, the Russian supplies. But the real problem is that prices for gas and electricity in Europe are still extremely elevated, around eight times the historical average for gas um, at the moment. So I think that the risk of winter rationing or electricity blackouts, they're, they're still there. But in a way, companies and households are, are self-rationing due to the extremely high prices. But of course, if that translates into lower industrial production or consumption, that is, of course, a, a greater problem for the, for the European economy. If I, if I, if I may add uh, one, one comment, uh, a surprising one is that gas prices are high, but they didn't go through the roof when Nord Stream 1 actually stopped supply. I find this quite remarkable. Now, Matthias, I'm really glad you mentioned Nord Stream 1 because I was going to ask how the, the issues with Nord Stream 1 actually have an impact? In what ways does that event actually matter? Well, I think this is rather a long, uh, uh, well, 
not a short-term issue, it's a longer-term issue, uh, which is that the hope that gas flow is coming again uh, if all of this situation has been solved is relatively limited because it will take probably a lot of time to repair the damage that has been done. So I think the issue uh, is more with, with regard to what's going to happen the winter after the current winter and how we get through uh, that situation by then. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree. I mean, from, from a narrow supply standpoint, uh, this doesn't really matter at all at the moment. I mean, Nord Stream 1 was already down. Now it's definitely not coming back. Um, but I think from a broader geopolitical standpoint, I think it points to the risk um, of further sabotage to Europe's energy infrastructure and, and the broader vulnerabilities in that term. Um, and if anything, it it's, it's looks a bit like a shot across the bow of, of the Bolt Pipe pipeline, which is linking... Norway to Poland now, and is one of the main efforts by, by the Central and Eastern European countries to diversify away from, from Russian gas. And Matthias, what have the companies that you and your colleagues followed done to prepare for uh, the, the Russian gas uh, interruption issues and high prices? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's um, very interesting to see. They seem to have picked the low-hanging fruit very, very quickly. So uh, many companies have switched wherever possible uh, from gas uh, usage of gas into other fossil fuels. And this seems to have been quite successful. Um, they have actually looked into their energy consumption in generally and were able to reduce energy com- consumption quite significantly. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are companies that are also reducing production of energy intensive uh, assets or products in Europe. Um, an example would be um, ArcelorMittal, uh, the world's largest steel producer. They have shut down two steel plants uh, in Germany and are replacing the production of those steel plants with other steel production outside of Germany. Uh, there is BISF that has reduced uh, ammonia production, which is uh, needs a lot of gas uh, in, in Ludwigshafen as well as in, in their plant in Belgium and are basically using supplies uh, from from other plants in other regions. So what industries are less exposed to this shock than uh, we might have anticipated? You've already given some examples of ways that companies have reoriented some some of their production. Um, But who are the, the those who are a bit more shielded, perhaps, than others in the current situation? Many, um, because, uh, you know, all industries are using energy to, to produce either as a feedstock or as, uh, you know, something to heat. Um, but I would think that, you know, food retail is a, is a, is a, is a sector that remains, that will remain very stable. It's probably uh, business services that uh, will be less impacted. Um, and then, of course, uh, it's also a question of where those companies and production facilities are located. So the, the closer you come to Central Europe, the, the worse it gets, I would say. And Petra, what about from the country perspective? Who's more or less uh, affected? You know, I think we all know Germany is significantly affected. Italy is significantly affected. But how does the map look to you? Yeah, I mean, apart from the two you already mentioned, uh, I mean, the ones, the countries in Europe that are Historically, the most reliant on Russian gas in particular are also Austria, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and, and Hungary. And this goes back, of course, to geographical and, and historical reasons, ties to the um, the communist bloc during the Cold War. Um, 
But I mean, again, coming back to the point about how the price channel impacts all of this, I mean, every country in Europe is feeling this in some way or another, uh, because it, in practice, the price of electricity is linked to that of gas in Europe, and there's a Europe-wide energy market, so no one can really hide from this. I mean, you take an example of a country like Sweden, which before the invasion of Ukraine imported next to no Russian gas, but it's still seeing electricity prices going through the roof. Probably, if I, if, I can, if I can add one more point, what makes the situation even worse is the situation in France, uh, where basically the, the nuclear plants are out of service at the moment due to the need to repair them. So uh, we are now in a, in, a, in a very unusual situation that Germany uh, is actually um, supplying uh, electricity to France. Um, and the, the, the electricity produced in Germany, to, to some extent, is, of course, produced using gas uh, as an input. That also is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, makes electricity very, very expensive. Yeah, we also, you know, had a, had a dry summer in Europe. So water levels are low. That means output from hydropower plants are lower than usual. And all of these adds to a very strained uh, energy supply situation in, in Europe. So where are the particular pinch points going to be this coming winter? You know, I opened up the, the session and we hear it all the time that it's going to be a hard winter for for the end of 2022 and 2023. I mean, Petra, is this going to put Europe into recession? Well, actually, we think we're already there uh, in many ways. Uh, the euro area is already uh, experiencing a contraction. Um, and, and for next year, what we're forecasting is still very weak growth. Uh, of only 0.3% in the euro area, a small contraction in Germany, basically a stagnant economy in Italy. And what are governments doing to try to mitigate the risks? Well, they're doing quite a bit, actually, in, on many different fronts. Um, one thing that's been in the news a lot is, of course, the very significant fiscal support packages um, that have been put out to cushion the impact of high energy prices on, on consumers and companies. We see a new package practically every week. There's been massive packages coming out of the UK and Germany very recently. Um, but we're also seeing things on, on an EU-wide level. Um, so there's many national governments have schemes where they tax the excessive profits or the super profits of those that generate electricity from, from non-carbon sources, so um, hydro, nuclear, and the like. They tax the profits and they channel them back in in, in support packages to consumers and, and businesses. And so there's now been a general agreement for an EU scheme along those lines, uh, which is planned to reach up to 140 billion. Um, but there are also discussions on various forms of price caps at the EU level, but there we're currently less advanced. And Matthias, what are companies doing to try to manage the risk? You've already talked about some shifts of where production is happening, for example. What else are they doing? Yeah, probably one, one uh, comment uh, ahead of that. Um, it appears that many of the cyclical industries are still riding the wave of um, Uh, COVID uh, recovery. And so many companies are actually telling us that their order books are full. And in addition, there has been the supply chain issues that we've been seeing for the last uh, couple of quarters. Uh, this is also one of the reasons why companies in the, in, in the first half of this year actually have increased their inventories quite a bit because they were all concerned that they couldn't get the raw materials that they needed. Um, this is now turning. So in the second half, we are seeing orders coming down and uh, companies actually switching from building up inventory to actually selling off out of the in inventory. Um, and this is basically also helping them to keep liquidity under control uh, because one of the key uh, things for a company to survive a crisis is 
to have liquidity. It's like oxygen uh, that we breathe, and if we don't have oxygen, we die. Um, so the, the, the good thing is that companies have actually taken care of refinancing measures, at least in the investment grade uh, uh, area. Um, and in the speculative grade area, uh, also refinancing wall is only coming in one and a half to two years. So for the time being, it looks like overall the portfolio is under control with here and there are a couple of exceptions. Now, is this just about energy consumption? We've been talking about energy intensive industries, for example, um, and where countries' energy dependencies are. Matthias, are there some aspects of these challenges that people might not appreciate? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, actually. And I'm always afraid that people are not seeing that issue, which is supply chain. So, you know, if a chemical plant cannot produce a certain product anymore that is used as a feedstock into other products, the other products cannot be produced anymore either. Uh, using the car industry as an example, uh, for a car, you need steel, you need glass and you need um, plastics. Um, if a steel plant is unable to produce steel, if a, if a glass plant is unable to unable to produce glass, um, there is no car because a car without steel and glass doesn't work. Same applies to, to, to plastics. Uh, what comes in addition is that it is extremely complicated to run down a steel plant as well as a glass plant uh, because if you're not careful, if you do not take the time to run down those plants, they're actually, um, in, in good old German, they're kaputt, uh, so they don't work anymore. And that's why this is a this is a real serious issue that we need to look into very closely and carefully. Yeah, and I tag on to that from from the sovereign perspective. I mean, I, what Man, Matthias mentioned about the difficulty of shutting down and then starting up some of these industrial processes, that brings a real risk of significant deindustrialization that these industries just aren't coming back. So that's a direct hit to the economic strength and the economic growth potential of, of some European countries. Um, and also, I mean, even if you say take out the aluminium, aluminium industry in, in Europe from just overall GDP figures, maybe the effect isn't that great. But again, as Messias mentioned, the, the supply chain impact of taking out, say, aluminium and making companies uh, being forced to sort of source that from elsewhere um, in what is already challenging supply chain circumstances will inevitably have an impact on the overall economy of many of these countries. So it just seems like it, it, it's just sort of a domino effect where even if something relatively narrow in scope happens one place, you can just see it moving throughout the economy and, in fact, across national borders. Now, are there some events that have compounded the current difficulties? Yeah, I think what we've seen, I mean, Europe has had its fair share of crisis over the past decade or so. Uh, what we've seen almost every time is significant monetary loosening from the European Central Bank and from national central banks across the EU. What we're seeing now is, of course, the exact opposite. We're seeing very significant tightening, um, above all, by already by central banks in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the ECB was off to a relatively slow start, but they're catching up, hiking at a very rapid pace. So you're seeing sort of monetary policy. You can understand why there is the tightening, because obviously inflation rates are extremely high and above the mandated levels. But naturally, this adds to the overall woes of, of the economy. Anything that, that you've seen, Matthias, that makes the current situation even more difficult? You've already mentioned, for example, the issues with French electricity. Uh, yes, that, that was a complete surprise to, our, to, to us that, uh, you know, the, the very expensive electricity produced in Central Europe now needs to be used in, in France. Um, uh, Probably also on the negative side is that um, 
you know, especially Germany decided to, to get out of nuclear energy as well as uh, coal, coal-fired power uh, at a time when the, uh, the alternative energy sources actually have not been built out well enough, uh, which probably is also one of the reasons that the power prices are pretty high right now. Um, on the positive side, uh, if, I'm, if I may add, um, you know, when we went through our portfolio in March, April, we expected around half of the companies in the European portfolio having to go to committee with a negative uh, rating recommendation in mind. Uh, when we looked at it again in August, uh, it actually went down to 20%. And this is to some extent also driven by the fact that companies have prepared themselves or have reacted quickly and especially much more quickly than uh, when I look at the situation in 2008 when the financial crisis broke out. Well, Petra, have there been any bright spots, any positive surprises that you've seen for sovereigns? Well, again, I think with the gas supply situation that I mentioned before, that storage is is unexpectedly high uh, and there's managed to be some diversification away from Russian gas already. That is a positive surprise. Um, But again, I think one must also avoid being too narrowly focused on on the coming winter difficult as it it will be, because this really is a long-term challenge for Europe in, in uh, overhauling its energy supply, essentially. Well, that brings me to, to the next thing I wanted to ask is, you know, we've been talking about this winter, poor Matthias is having cold showers for months on end. Uh, what do we see as being in the in the future for t- winter 2023-24? Well, I think if, if you start by looking at, at futures market for, for gas and electricity, what's striking is that the indication there is that prices will stay very elevated uh, by historical standards for very long, well into 2025. And that just brings me back to the point about this being a a long-term challenge and a pretty fundamental shift in the way Europe gets its energy. Uh, If you go back to the spring, the European Commission unveiled a plan for an orderly phase-out of Russian gas that had 2027 as its end date. Uh, So now we're being forced to do this in, in something like seven months instead of seven years. So I think that just points to the challenge and and next winter as well is likely to be difficult. And this is going to be a challenge for many countries, even even beyond that. Now, where is the gas going to come from? So you've been talking a lot about storage. Presumably, a lot of the the gas that's already in storage uh, came from Russia in the first place. What's the plan to deal with a 2023 with basically no gas flow from Russia at all? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, again, there's already been efforts to diversify away source LNG from from other markets, but the problem there is that it's it's, you know, it's very difficult to expand global supply even over a horizon of say twelve months. So essentially, for LNG, what Europe ends up having to do is to try and outbid uh, mainly Asian buyers for liquefied natural gas. And an additional problem there is that consumption in China has probably been unusually low because you still had zero COVID policy making a mark and, and dampening consumption. And if you assume that loosens up and China comes back on stream more fully, Europe is going to have to continue to um, essentially fight over scarce liquefied natural gas supplies uh, also next winter, perhaps even more fiercely than, than now. That's interesting, Peter, because if, for me, um, it's, it's probably positive if China recovers. <laughs> Admittedly, there's, of course, competition for energy. Yeah. But um, our car companies are actually quite, or actually my, my, my auto analyst in China, he is quite optimistic uh, when he looks at uh, the auto market in China, which is also something that should actually support, for example, the European car manufacturers. 
so Matthias, how do the, how do the issues with consumers affect your corporates? Yeah, for the, for the time being, um, the issue is not yet clearly visible. But what we expect is that um, over time, especially uh, companies that are related to consumer goods, will be uh, significantly affected uh, going forward. And this will have, of course, an impact on their creditworthiness as well. We've only recently uh, downgraded uh, Seconomy, which is the parent company of MediaMarkt Saturn, from BA1 to BA2 under further uh, review of a downgrade, which is, to me, one of the first signs of consumer sentiment weakening. So as usual, we, we like to close each of our episodes with a lightning round. And so, Petra, I'll start with you. What is an aspect of the European energy crisis that you think hasn't gotten a lot of attention? Well, this is one energy transition process that's been you know, forced upon Europe. But there's another even greater transition around the corner, which is overhauling an energy supply in Europe that's still predominantly carbon-based. And I think the current crisis points to some of the risks for the European economy of getting that process wrong. Yeah, and, and, and on my side, I mean, what is still extremely disappointing is uh, actually the state of the wind power uh, industry. So the, the, the wind turbine producers uh, still are not making any money, uh, despite the fact that all of us need actually alternative energy. And this is to some extent driven by the fact that it takes a long time uh, to get approval to build uh, wind turbines uh, onshore, especially. Um, in Germany, for example, um, it, it takes already a year to measure whether any birds would be affected when building a, a wind turbine. And this is certainly not the speed uh, that we need in order to replace fossil fuels. And this is really disappointing. Well, Petter, Matthias, thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. Until next time, I'm Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody Stocks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.